I know you hate when non-wrestlers pitch you wrestling stuff, but I'm going to pitch you wrestling stuff as a non-wrestler. Hear me out. This is such a Ring of Honor heavy episode. A fight without Scout's Honor between you and Tent that ends in the I'm sorry I love you, Shawn Michaels, super kick spot. You beat Tent, and then he goes and wrestles for TNA for, I don't know, four years. You son of a bitch. Don't you realize that that's what I've been trying to pitch with Wrestling Revolver for like the last year now is for Tent to come back and be my tag partner. We've already had this whole feud of Planet where halfway through and you've gone and ruined it. <laughs> ruined it. You, you put it out into the podcast world. It's now your IP. It's not mine, even though I came up with it. So thank you. And I do appreciate you saying he goes off with Impact Wrestling because I guarantee you as soon as Scott Demore sees a match between me and a tent. Scott Demore will hire the tent and not me because that's how much of a fucking genius he is and how he's never replied to any of the emails I've ever sent to him in my entire life. The only person that's ever replied to an email to me from Impact Wrestling, any representative from Impact Wrestling, is Sanjay Dutt, <laughs> to which he replied with, I already know who you are. And I <laughs> take that for what it's worth. So. 10, you can go to Impact Wrestling. Let, let me know how those $200 a day payoffs go when they make you wrestle three times in one day so they don't have to pay you 200 bucks. All right. Hello. This is Tim Bell Pod. I am Nick Alexander, and I am joined by Two Roads Diverge and a Tyler Wood. Little Robert Frost on a wrestling podcast. Uh, Tyler Wood, everyone. Hell yeah, let's get infected, fellas. <laughs> I can't wait for you to start doing Maya Angelou and introductions for Tyler as well, as well as numerous other famous poets and writers. And that is, of course, Tinta Kampashi himself, the man scout Jake Manning. Somebody is clearly doing research for uh, the Mitsuharu Musawa episode. So <laughs> he is practicing his Japanese wrestlers from the 90s and pronouncing them and mixing them around. And I appreciate the hard work you've done so far on future episodes, but we have one heck of a one good one today. Yes, konnichiwa, Nick. <laughs> I, I literally downloaded Duolingo and started learning Japanese today. So we'll see how that goes. Don't worry, everybody on Twitter will tell you you pronounced it wrong, uh, because <laughs> for eons upon eons of tape traders, they've called somebody something forever, and then when you say it actually correct in Japanese, they're going to correct you like you're wrong, because if Dave Meltzer said it right on one interview, that's how it is forever. We're like, well, Dave Meltzer says it's pronounced like this, so that's, that's our canon. Better get used to that. Good old wrestling Twitter. All right, so today we're talking about Honestly, one of the greatest indie hills of all time, Jimmy Rave. So if you're like me, you're mostly going to know Jimmy from his Ring of Honor days. Uh, shout out to Micah for letting me borrow a bunch of random Ring of Honor DVDs in like, I don't know, 2008, 2009. But to some, you know, especially the more WWE-centric crowd, Jimmy's kind of a deep cut. So what would be your, you know, quick description, elevator pitch on good old JR? 
Oh no, Jimmy. Jimmy's Jr. Too. That's what I was going for. Oh, is that what you're going for? Because we're like, we don't have enough time, nor do we have enough Moscow mules in our system uh, to talk about Jim Ross. But if we're talking about Jimmy Rave, I'm I'm drinking a non-alcoholic brewed beer. So uh, I got got all day for you. I got all day for you when when I'm having one of these athletic brewing company drinks. For, For me, Jimmy Rave, you know, you could just talk about, you know, like a big star ring of honor and CCW and everywhere on the indies. And of course he was on TNA and impact wrestling. I met Jimmy like after all that was over and he was just the guy in Georgia wrestling in, in, in indie wrestling. And man, like I just know him so much as a, as like a wonderful human being. Like he was just so nice. So cool. He booked me for about every promotion that he ever worked for. I think Jimmy Rave at one point in time booked me. And now obviously it was probably through Caleb who he's known forever, but he always made sure that I had a spot on the show. If he saw me there, he put me on the show. So my experiences with Jimmy are probably different than your guys' experience with Jimmy, where you saw him perform in Ring of Honor and multiple other places. For me, he was just one of the nicest guys I met. He's just another one of the guys in the locker room, and he was usually booking someplace, and he was always very kind to me, which was always much appreciated. So as much as people hated him, I I probably equally loved him as much as fans hated him. (laughs) My first introduction to Jimmy Rave was during the wonderful time in Impact Wrestling when I was watching as a kid. <laughs> the first place I was introduced to him was in the Rock and Rave Infection, which we will get into a little bit later. But Nick, much like you, I also went through a few Ring of Honor DVDs in 2009. I fell in love with independent wrestling. That time in Ring of Honor like really showed me how much amazing wrestling was out there aside from what was on television and Jimmy Rave was right in the middle of it. I believe he was with Prince Nana at the time with the embassy and to see how hated he was by everybody was <laughs> amazing. The toilet paper, like it was crazy to see ring of honor throwing streamers to wrestlers that they respect. And for that to be flipped on its head with the toilet paper streamers, Jimmy Rave was a standout. James. Michael Guffey was born December 8th, 1982 in Atlanta, Georgia. Which I just realized that I am older than Jimmy Rave, (laughs) which is, I always felt like he was like a veteran, he was a veteran to me, which he was, he wrestled longer than I did because he started very young, but uh, yeah, like I I didn't realize that until we were doing our research that I am older than Jimmy Rave. I thought he was the one person that I was like, I was younger than? Nope, not the case. Uh, not the case whatsoever. So, old man Manning over here. Just continue talking, Nicholas. James grew up in a military family, having a childhood that he described as chaotic and hectic. And let me tell you, that is completely no-selling it. Hulking up and leg-dropping his childhood experience because it is no good. First, his mom would split from his original dad. You know, not the biggest deal. A lot of us have that story. But she would remarry a guy that uh, James would grow up to not get along with, and that sucks. Way worse, James was sexually abused by an uncle when he was five. Uh, his uncle was 13. You never really hear that. But Jimmy didn't tell anyone till he was about 11, and that obviously caused a lot of family drama. But since this happened when they were both minors and years prior, just nothing was done about it. Following that news, Jimmy's mom began drinking heavily, so heavily that he ran away from home at 14 in an attempt to get her to stop. And at 14, James was homeless for about nine months, surviving by couch surfing, 
he eventually went to live with uh, his grandma. So grandma was already taking care of a kid that was almost the same age as Jimmy, but was technically like an uncle by marriage or something crazy. One of those scenarios. Anyways, this kid was caught with weed and a gun and tried to frame James for it. So he ran away again. He headed back to his mom, who at this point was just a crippling alcoholic. James ended up getting arrested for the gun and the weed, and since his grandma no longer wanted him in the house, and since his mom was too unwell to take care of him, he was sent to a group home until uh, a little bit later when his aunt ended up taking care of him. Then just real shitty cherry on top, Jimmy's mom died when he was 16. That's exceptional, even for a Georgia origin story, I'll have to say that. Like, that is... It's a lot, and I remember him talking about some of this on Cole Cabana's Art of Wrestling podcast, and I'm just like, holy shit. And I think he only said a third of this on on Colt's podcast, and, and obviously in subsequent in- interviews as, as he processed his younger life, like more stuff started to come out, and the more you hear about it, you're like, man, how did you even get to this stage in life? And I adamantly feel that pro wrestling probably obviously i can't i don't know if i can really say saved his life but it definitely took it to a place that if he wouldn't have had pro wrestling in his life his life would have never got to like i i feel like if he wouldn't have found professional wrestling and found something to focus on to push for to have to want to chase after he just would have been some dude that would have done something stupid when he was 17 and had too much to drink or you know, done something really, really dumb and hurt somebody or hurt himself or killed himself or done something really stupid before he ever was 21. So, you know, you could say a lot of stuff about pro wrestling and I, I most certainly have and, you know, said some very derogatory things about pro wrestling and how it, like sometimes I feel trapped by it and it's made me make bad decisions in my life. But at the end of the day, it's it's a goal for people. And sometimes those people that are close to falling off into a very negative space. Sometimes it's the thing that pull you back and it has for me. And it definitely was for Jimmy in a much larger way. Yeah. It's that passion for wrestling that so many people have. And obviously all the guys that start super young, they love it. They absolutely love professional wrestling. And I can only assume that Jimmy was watching it as a kid and it was an escape for him outside of all these shitty negative things. And Going into wrestling young, it, it got him off the streets and it got him focused on something and, and working towards something that he loved. Well, also, too, like I think pro wrestling, especially in the 80s, it probably had this effect in a sense of he he's seen like good people do bad things. He's seen bad things happen to good people. When you watch pro wrestling during the time that he would have grown up watching it, there is a good guy. He beats up the bad guy. And then justice is served. It is very much what you hope the world is like. And it is not your reality, but it's a nice escape in that you see the good guy win. And that's kind of what pro wrestling is great at. And it's fantastic at. And that's what I feel like it always should be is these incredible stories of these people that are put in front of adversity and they find a way to win. Not have them job out to WrestleMania, and yeah. they said, "Don't worry, we're going to continue the story." <laughs> and uh, uh, then this guy will never be the same. And hot as he ever was, he's going to be the mid card. But don't worry, like story's not over. The good guy's going to win. 
Because we got to get the bad guy to have a thousand day title run. Mm-hmm. Right. Neck tattoos will prevail, Jake. I have faith. <laughs> I don't think I ever met Jimmy and, you know, definitely didn't know him personally. But watching his shoot, he came off as just such like a nice person. And to hear you confirm that is, you know, it's good, but it's also kind of amazing that he could go through everything he went through and then still come out of the other end of it as, you know, like a really nice, pure person. And the the shoot you're referring to is, is an RF video one that's a little bit later. Like it's, it's one of like probably closer to the end of his life, right? Yeah. Okay. I remember when I worked at High Spots, Jimmy was like, probably about the time he recorded this one, he was like pitching like, hey, can I do a shoot interview? And I was like, well, we're not really doing shoot interviews right now. And it was kind of like the time of the Steen show and the other like shows that we had created with other like wrestling talent, the Mance Warners and everybody else and Ethan Page. I'm like, well, why don't you just talk to one of these guys if you have some sort of rapport? He goes, no, I, just, I don't really know any of those guys that you do interviews with. Can I just do a shoot? I'm like, well, we're not really filming shoots. And so like, I had to tell him no, which I hate because he's said yes to me every time. And I think he probably wanted to get some stuff off his chest, obviously, because he, he went into great detail of his childhood. So he probably wanted to get that out in the world and get that in the public and get it in light instead of it being inside of himself. And I always felt really bad about telling him no. But when I started doing the fireside chats, he was like one of the first guys I talked to. And like I was really close to getting him, like going down to Georgia and just just doing an interview with him. I think like just before COVID hit, I was gonna make it happen. Like I feel like if the world had a shutdown and shows would have been happening, like I would have booked a show around doing an interview with him the night before and then be on a show that he's probably was putting together. So yeah, that's one of my like really bummer things that never got to happen when I was doing those those fireside chats at high spots and they were they were really good and I really enjoyed them they were they were a lot of fun and it's a shame I never got to talk to to Jimmy about this because those shows were just basically whatever you want to talk about and we would have talked about his childhood and anything other than his entire wrestling career which we'll get into very shortly throughout all his childhood trauma James was also a really good baseball player I believe uh, he saw this as his first you know kind of love first kind of way out you know, he ended up having to, I, I would assume, drop out, quit because of everything we just said. But uh, his rival high school is where Cody Rhodes went to school. And he mentioned showing up to like a game or batting practice or whatever. And sometimes there would just be Dusty Rhodes. How weird is that? Listen, I like Cody as much as the next guy, but very charmed life. <laughs> very charmed life. <laughs> and, and here's Jimmy Rafe. <laughs> And his childhood next yeah. to like, and they both ended up being wrestlers. Yeah, but only one solved the, racism. This is true. This, this, this is true. On top of baseball, James was a big wrestling fan growing up. Uh, while his stepdad was deployed in Hawaii, he get to go see WWF for his birthday on their yearly visit to the island. He loved Mr. Perfect. Of course, as a kid, he loved Hulk Hogan. And Jake, he was an HBK guy. Hell yeah, that's why we got along so well. <laughs> and, you know, Jimmy had his had his peccadillos as well, too, and realized, yeah, I made mistakes. It's okay. I'm good now. Like mo- many HBK guys, we've all, we've all yelled at somebody a moment in time. We've had to say sorry to people, but we're good now. For however long now is, we're good. And we always usually make amends for whatever we've done. So... I got so much time for any HBK guys, as opposed to a Bret Hart guy explaining to me why he was always in the right. 
and he was wronged, and continues on with that victim mentality. You know, Brett guys don't make mistakes, Jake. That's something you really need to strive towards. You need to strive to be a Brett guy. Uh, that would be exhibit A. <laughs> In my defense against Brett guys. So getting into wrestling, James connected with a referee from Atlanta's War Zone Wrestling on AOL. So Tyler, the internet used to come on a CD like 120 minutes at a time called AOL. What's a CD? Is that like a cassette tape? <laughs> So the ref named Kenny, he didn't say his last name, uh, introduces the 14, almost 15-year-old James to a pro wrestler named Homicide. It's not that Homicide. It's a guy who goes by Murder One now. And I'm no parent, but it's going to be a hard no for my 14-year-old going to meet a random dude off the internet named Murder. Well, fucking Murder is also a nice human being. Oh, like, nice. <laughs> he is, he's the nicest person ever. But yeah, you're right. It is weird saying like, oh, that's my friend Murder One or <laughs> Murder. Or since he's from the Atlanta, Georgia area, Murder! <laughs> In Jabru's voice. Murder One is uh, tag partners with Murder Dose, right? That, that's a good uh, Bruiser Brody <laughs> joke that should have got more love from both of us. <laughs> Okay, sure. Uh, or got love from nobody, uh, whichever you prefer. Uh, it got what it deserved because I didn't even mean for it to be a reference to that. So we'll just move on. Yeah, we'll move on. Uh, Murder's an awesome person. Uh, also, too, uh, I believe he was the guy that also trained Caleb Conley as oh, well. Nice. And no shit. I think, I think he also had a hand in training Priscilla Kelly. Hmm. I know Jimmy Ray was involved at Maybe even like Chip Day. Any really good Georgia indie guy, Murder has either trained, helped out with, wrestled, like, Murder is, he's the dude, man. He's the real, real deal. I could sit here and talk for an hour about how amazing Murder One is, but um, yeah, another great, solid dude, for sure. So James, who was about 15, started training with Murder One, and it was hard training. You know, they played all the hits, the long drives, ring crews, selling merch, uh, being a plant in the audience to get the shit kicked out of him before he ever had a real match. His first match would come just a few days before his 17th birthday when he wrestled, I believe it was Dark Gable, October of 99, and James worked under a mask as Mr. XTC, you know, like the, the drug. Big reason why James was under a hood was A, because he legally wasn't old enough to uh, wrestle yet, and also the promoter said he didn't have a marketable face, so, you know, kind of a dick move. Which is stupid, he has the most marketable face. Um... <laughs> Also, too, like, don't know why we're working so hard to put this. See, oh, he's underage. There are no wrestling cops in Georgia. All right, this is no. There's no. There's no commission. It, it is more of a lawless jungle wrestling wise than South Carolina is, which is saying something because mm. Georgia is the slightly dirtier version of South Carolina. Which I don't know why they were trying to hide it. Like that's just North Carolina and Georgia. Come on, guys. Like North Carolina, they didn't care that the Hardy Boys were like nine years old wrestling on a trampoline nobody cared and then like especially when like champagne was showing up as a 27 year old man wrestling nine-year-olds i'm like this is our trampoline federation and let's pay ten dollars for all the local kids nobody cared um nobody at Wildside was gonna care the fact that you are frying food inside of an enclosed space seems <laughs> like a bigger violation of the laws in georgia than letting a 15 year old do some sort of athletic competition Ooh, good champagne reference there. Just saw him at GCW recently. He is still there. Uh, the 
underage aspect of this, Jake, who is the youngest person you've ever wrestled? Uh, it's got to be. It's, it's, it's one of three guys. Colby Carino, Kerry Morton, or Andrew Everett. Hmm. Now there might be there might be some someone somewhere else, but those to me seem like those would be the three because obviously Carino's son obviously would have been in the in the ring very early, and it seems like they'd be trained enough to, to which that those guys would have enough respect. Like, hey, I want you to wrestle my son. Actually, no, I just wrestled Kerry recently. I might have like messed around and did some spots in the ring with with Kerry Morton when he was like eight, but he wasn't like fully trained. But as a, as a trained wrestler, I think we wrestled like a year or so ago, so that that's already incorrect. Andrew Everett was like messing around the CWF shows a lot, and he was like Kazi, like mini Kazi, kamikaze kid or something like that. Like he wore a mask out to somebody to the ring. He wasn't Shiva kid, was he? Yes, he was. Oh no shit. Okay. Yeah, so like I, I probably did some sort of spot with him at some point in time. But to me, if it was been would have been the youngest, those would be one of those three I would have done something in the ring with. Now, full on match, it's probably gonna be Colby Carino, but I definitely probably wrestled around with Kerry Morton when he was ten or twelve. I think that's probably feasible. We also at one point in time during the high spots training school, we had a very young kid who he had a illness that was going to prevent him from living a you know normal life. Like he, the prognosis was he wasn't going to make it to 17 and he loved wrestling and he wanted to wrestle. And the mom was just, you know, told that whole story. And she's like, I want my son to train. I want him to do something. I want him to be around wrestling. I, I don't expect him to go out there and do superplexes, but is there anything you can do? Is there any way I'll pay the full price? I don't care. I just want to give my son, some sort of experience and like i said i don't even know if he was he i don't even know if he was 10 he might have been eight or nine and we used to train with him in george's class it would always be like we do a bunch of spots and then we do a little bit of time for him and run a couple spots for him so yeah like i was it was like i think from nine to 12 was when he was at the school and he was around and yeah i never kept up with with him and see how he was coming along or if they were able to find some way to prolong his life. Um, I think his mother checked in at some point in time during the school, but I, I never never found out what happened to him. But yeah, he was like a 9 to 12-year-old that would train with us every week. So as far as a match-match, it, it wouldn't be surprised if it was somebody who was 17 or 16. But as far as like wrestling-wrestling, it goes all the way down to 9. I like running like full-on spots, like duck one, duck two, tilt-a-whirl, and then the I remember he also did like a training seminar with Les Thatcher and Les Thatcher came up with some, he had, he had like some really good spots for him, like some like British wrestling stuff that you'd see Nigel McGuinness do. We got this kid to do that with us. So that's cool. Yeah. Probably the, the last kid aside, but like, how do you approach it as a veteran when you see somebody as young as this coming into a promotion? Oh, I'm going to beat the piss out of him. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No, uh, no, um, I, it, there's a sense of care. There's also like something that goes through my mind too of, man, I don't really want to like hurt this kid because his bones are still developing. It's something I was very aware of when I'd wrestle somebody who was like younger is like, I don't want to like give you a stress fracture that you're going to be dealing with the rest of your life because your bones are still growing. I mean, that was always kind of a concern when I'd wrestle somebody like that. Fuck that. Next time you shoot on those kids and don't expose the business. <laughs> 
I don't, doesn't mean I wouldn't drop him over my knee like like Bane. Like I gave some of my best backbreakers to to a young uh, Colby Carino, <laughs> for sure. By 01, James had adopted the name Jimmy Rave and was having matches for Bill Barron's at NWA Wildside out of Cornelia, Georgia. It was here Jimmy met AJ Styles, uh, working with them, traveling with them. And although AJ was older, at this point, they had been wrestling, you know, about the same amount of time. And NWA Wildside was like the hot indie. I think it'd be... The equivalent of that would be like GCW today. If you wrestled for Wildside, you were you were the it guy, and people wanted to book you. And I was in the Midwest, and I'd always hear these things when I'd be working ring crew for NWA No Limits, which was connected with NWA Mid South. And they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna get Carlota Wildside guys to come up." You know, it was always this thought process, like, you know, oh, let's get some Wildside guys in here, and. I think for a short period of time, they also had some of the power plant guys come over and work matches at Wildside, kind of like a developmental in a sense, just to give them an extra match or two because they'd be training at the power plant in Atlanta and they could drive up to Cornelia in that barn slash church that they'd held Wildside in forever that people are apparently still holding matches in to this day in Cornelia, Georgia. A lot of the early WCW, I think like Kiwi, Sonny Siaki, like a lot of the, the power plant guys would come up and, and do, do matches up there to get the extra experience in front of a live crowd. And if WCW was around, it could have been like their OVW to an extent um, where, where people would wrestle and get some experience on shows. But yeah, Wildside always had like a super big reputation. They were hot there for a minute and having somebody like AJ come out of there and Jimmy Ray were the notable guys that came out of there. And of course, you have the Icebergs, Murder One, obviously, and a bunch of other guys that'll probably come up in this whole discussion. While in Wildside, Jimmy would have the first feud that would get him a little bit of notice, at least on a regional level, when he and Caprice Coleman pro wrestled over the junior heavyweight title. Uh, that's a name for you, a guy who I see almost on a weekly basis, uh, who does Ring of Honor commentary. Um, and apparently he still has matches from time to time. I just saw a flyer with him recently. So me and Caprice are still wrestling. <laughs> if, 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 if promoters in South Carolina are curious, we both have our license and we are both available for bookings, even though we have a very nice job that Tony Khan signs a paycheck on. So we are still willing to do that North and South Carolina indie show where the locker room is behind a tarp. In late 02, Jimmy started taking spots in IWA Mid-South, where Punk and Cabana took a liking to him. Jimmy was part of IWA 2002's Ted Petty Invitational, which is uh, one of the most mockers cards I've ever seen. You have CM Punk, Cabana, Chris Hero, Chris Daniels, BJ Whitmer, AJ Styles, Super Dragon, Nick Mondo, and of course, Jimmy. Say what you will about Ian Rotten, but the man had an eye for talent, talent that he usually did not pay. Uh, exploit. The, the, he was an equal opportunity exploiter, uh, hence why he also kind of gave a lot of females opportunities when no other wrestling promoter was giving them opportunities. Also, probably that's probably a little bit of poking and prodding by Dave Prezak to push that forward, who eventually ran Shimmer. But yeah, I don't admit South, those Ted Petty in- invitationals, that was what Bola is now. Mm-hmm. That's what Ted Petty was okay. before like Bola became a the thing it was like Bola kind of existed at the same time that Ted Petty existed or a few it came up like a few years after Ted Petty first started but obviously the only thing that 
is notable probably would be Bola is the only equivalent of today's indie wrestling. Yeah, those Ted Petty Invitationals, it was an incubator for those guys that went into the Bola big name ones like 08 onwards. It's amazing. It's like a stretch of like five or six years here where the people are like, like you listed in this one, Nick, it's a who's who of up and coming indie talent at the time. And it's amazing how stacked it is. Getting into 2003, Jimmy would do some spots in NWA's TNA and also the fairly new CZW. He'd be part of CZW's Trifecta Elimination and Best of the Best 3, where he wrestled against Jay Briscoe. That match is on YouTube in its entirety. Don't know for how much longer, but if anybody wants to check it out, it's a very quick one. It's pretty hard hitting, and it's over within 10 minutes. A fun little watch. Uh, I'm a little upset, Nicholas. You didn't start this CZW section with the CZW theme song. Like, all right, come on. Like, it's, it's some of Zandig's best work. That and being hung from the ceiling by his skin by these little hooks. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> by May of 03, Jimmy would debut in Ring of Honor, quickly becoming part of the foundation of the very young company. Jimmy would be part of the first ever Death Before Dishonor July 19th of 03, taking a loss to Matt Stryker with a Y. That's, uh... Not the WWE Matt Striker. That's the one with the eyebrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to always make that distinction. Even even in 2023, <laughs> we still have to make that distinction. I, gun to my head, a one with the Y is probably the one I prefer. Same. So at this point, Jimmy is getting a little heat behind him. He's bouncing back and forth between CZW and Ring of Honor, like a lot of wrestlers did at, a, at the time. He lost a CZW world title match to AJ. Back in Ring of Honor, he'd take on Cabana. Back over to CZW, he'd make it to the finals of the Iron Man title tournament with him and Nick Gage losing to uh, past episode Trent Acid before taking that title from Trent a couple months later. There's a lot of stuff from this general time frame, like 05, 06. They have some matches on YouTube, uh, so very quick, easy access for anybody that wants to hop on there. We've got Jimmy Rave, Alex Shelley, and Abyss versus Matt Seidel, Jack Evans, and Jimmy Yang. That is from Ring of Honor Tag Wars. That is a, a hell of a match. Uh, and there's also the full-length 05 cage match between him and CM Punk. Jimmy would defend his CZW belt against all the indie nostalgia. You got Jimmy Jacobs, Joey Cancelled, and Ruckus before dropping the belt to Chris Hero, May of 04. Back over in Ring of Honor, 04 would be the year the embassy was formed by Prince Nana, who would go on to recruit Jimmy on my birthday, March 21st, and here comes all that nuclear heat and toilet paper. Well, I was looking on on Twitter earlier because I was looking for something about this particular episode, and this tweet came up, and I didn't even think about it till now, and I'm surprised I haven't thought about it sooner, even knowing we were going into this episode. Because the embassy is a thing in 2023. 
which I'll tell you how that happened because I think Twitter pretty much nailed it and figured it out because we had this Ring of Honor pay-per-view booked and Tully Blanchard was supposed to be there to manage Brian Cage and um, the the Gates of Agony and those were going to be his guys and they were going to do this whole angle with him and Tully's just like, nope, not going to come, brother. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I, I have these... Uh, ministry bookings that I have and somebody no-showed and I need to make this good. Uh, I don't care about this Ring of Honor pay-per-view. Goodbye. Uh, (laughs) So they were in Massachusetts. They needed a manager to take over in this spot. And I think Grisham was still kind of involved with with all of those guys as well. So they needed somebody as a mouthpiece to be incorporated in all this. And just because, you know, he was trying to get his foot in the door, was around at shows and, and would like make appearances from time to time and was fresh in people's minds. Like Prince Nana would always just show up and be like, Hey, you know, just saying hi to everybody. Like he'd always show up in the New York shows and make, make his face be seen. That happened soon enough, you know, before they were like, Hey, we need somebody to be a manager. Prince Nana. We just saw him two weeks ago. Let's see if we can get him here to Massachusetts. He lives in New York. And now you see Prince Nana on Ring of Honor television and Rampage before that, and even probably on Dynamite as well. And that's all because he just made a point to say hello whenever he was in the area and he got himself a job. And back to what I was saying when I was going through through Twitter for this episode, I saw a tweet where somebody said, man, it is a shame that the embassy is on national television and we don't have Jimmy Rave. So, th- so think about all the things he was doing in Ring of Honor. As much of a mark for Ring of Honor as Tony Khan is, if Jimmy Rave was just around in existence, like just on this earth today, and was in any semblance of ring shape, he would most certainly get a shot on this new incarnation of Ring of Honor, or would have been on incarnations of Rampage when there were a lot of Ring of Honor matches and and doing the whole spiel. I don't know if you go as far as to have Jay Chung get on all fours and use her as a step stool. <laughs> They, they may have a young boy do that, but I don't think they would necessarily do that with somebody else. But Jimmy Rave could have gotten an entire new run in front of an entirely new audience doing what he was doing at the, the Murphy Rec Center. And that, I think that, that's truly like thinking about that, like just before this episode, it makes me realize, oh man, like it really never is over. There are always more opportunities out there in the world. And if Jimmy was around today, I really wholeheartedly believe that that would have come to fruition because this embassy stuff was so solely him. Like Nana did, does a good job. He's great. But I mean, it's Jimmy that makes this a complete package and as successful it is. And, and I hope every day Nana thanks, thanks to stars that Jimmy Rave was presented to him as the crown jewel of the embassy. Oh, four is more of the same for Jimmy CZW ring of honor, some IWA, some TNA with names like shark boy, Roderick strong, Jack Evans, Jay lethal, finally stopping off at the third ever ring of honor final battle to lose a pure title shot to John Walters in early Oh five. Jimmy got his first WWE match taking on Chris masters on Sunday night heat, March 14th. It's about a 90 second match with Jimmy doing the job. Man, Chris Masters was hot at that time. And dude was, uh, both uh, literally and figuratively, he was just built like you would not fucking believe. 
Yeah, n- nice pecs, and I know how you're a boob guy, I am, Tyler. I as am. we as we established Dude, last episode, you are a boob fuck guy. Fuck that, I'm a trap guy. And, and uh, Chris Masters had those. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> just just push those traps together and just slide your penis in between. Like, is that yeah? That's that the master lock. That's that's <laughs> your master lock. <laughs> Back in Ring of Honor, Jimmy started a feud with CM Punk. That led to matches between the Embassy and the Second City Saints. They had a dog collar match at Manhattan Mayhem. I think I remember that DVD. They also had a cage match at Nowhere to Run. So Punk is hella over as a face. The crowd loathes Jimmy. So all these matches are fun. Jimmy also did this gimmick where he started stealing people's finishers. I mostly remember the feud with him and AJ Styles. And I know I watched the DVD of the match to determine who gets the move, which is... uh, Michelle McCool. His weird running uh, comes in out of nowhere. She she had the money in the she cashed in the money in the bank right right there in the Manhattan Center. The place went electric. She cashed it in, took the Styles Clash, and that's hers forever. I prefer if you refer to it as the Angels' wings or whatever the fuck she calls it. Jimmy would be part of the Embassy versus Generation Next at Steel Cage Warfare. And I'm 90% sure this is the match where Jack Evans runs down to the ring, climbs up to the top of the cage, and just front flips like a fucking maniac into a pile of people. And those flips, like, are always tough to catch because you don't know if you're going to get caught with a foot. Like, if if you're going to jump off, if you're going to jump off something high, like, just kind of flat, you know, like a like a Darby Trust or just fly off with a crossbody. When you start like adding rotations and picking up speed with gravity. I mean, come on. Like, now you wonder why, like, people don't want to catch you. I mean, we will, but you're probably going to knock us out in the process. Was that close to the time that uh, Teddy Hart was, like, flipping off the cage and started puking? Was that... That was before, wasn't it? I don't think... I don't know if this was this time. I'm, I'm My chronological history of Ring of Honor is a bit fuzzy, but I do know the Teddy Hart story because it has been told multiple times over and should be it's as a it is a lesson to young people to, of don't be stupid so yeah i watched the dvds in such a, a random order that it's really hard for me to pinpoint anything like chronologically uh so i really have no idea what's happening <laughs> most people did it's like the, the, nobody can get a hard timeline unless you're shane hagedorn who's in the process of writing a book about ring of honor like that is that is the only way to clean up the timeline he is he's basically the brian singer of ring of honor he will just re reform the timeline the way it's supposed to be and he won't molest kids at a pool party uh, while he does it so which is such a high standard to hold somebody to (laughs) especially in forms of entertainment (laughs) tell me about it So by 06, Ring of Honor had grown from this little indie fet taking over the Northeast to touring the country and expanding into live shows in other countries. Speaking of other countries, it was in 06 after a little run with Daniel Bryanson that he got his first work in Japan for Dragon Gate. And this may be the first time we've ever brought up Dragon Gate. Jake, what do you know about Dragon Gate? One of the best multi-man matches I've ever seen before in my life is from Torimon, which birthed Dragon Gate, and just that crew of guys was unbelievable. Especially with, like they, it's very similar. You kind of see it now, where you have these factions of of wrestlers, where like we're this group, like we're Blackpool Combat Club, we are best friends, we are the elite, like these groups that are 
anywhere from three to four people that you can build around into you know angles and storylines and kind of a team thing this one for the elite one for blackpool combat club like these groups that exist inside of a promotion and then what ends up happening is the groups start fighting each other and that builds into like a really huge multi-man thing where ronin's taking on this group over here and and fighting like a big multi-man match it always leads into some big crazy six man and that that's what they're great at is just these these car crashes these things that just evolve into spot 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 and like that's what i always think about with dragon gate is they have some of the best multi-man matches you ever see with a fluidity to them that builds to a crescendo and it just it just everybody's best shit just on top of it (laughs) and then finally one big thing and then ends it out of nowhere but yeah if you want to come up with multi-man spots I would look at old Torimon or Dragon Gate because they're in there, like like the multiple man suplex spots. I steal a lot of their stuff, actually, believe it or not, for um, fantasy cosplay wrestling. <laughs> when I when I dress up like Deadpool and I'm in a scramble match with six or eight people, like I'm always trying to think of some crazy Dragon Gate multi man spot that I could do with, with everybody. You should start so. trying your best to emulate how BB Hulk looked back in the day. <laughs> yeah, just try that. Just a very very handsome Asian man. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it. I'm sure, I'm sure whatever I say now is going to be deemed as insensitive, and I will not say anything whatsoever. Uh, you you failed once again in getting me canceled, Tyler, so you can kick me off the podcast. I can stop giving you shit. So I feel like that's what you're trying to do is put me in these traps where I say something that's a little off color, you know? Not today. Back in America. Jimmy had a little run with Nigel McGinnis, who is apparently a magician now. He did a magic show in Santa Monica over WrestleMania weekend. Are you serious? Pick a card, mate. Pick a card. What's your card? Now, what's your, is your card the Ace of Spades? <laughs> I can say that because I'm, I am, I am having sex with a British woman. I can make fun of British people as much as I want because I have a British woman making fun of me nonstop, every day, all day. Um, well, he's your yeah, also, he's, he's your coworker now, right? Yeah, just a freshly new coworker as well too. Just let everybody know they were going to Wembley Stadium <laughs> in August twenty seventh of twenty twenty three. I just want um, you all to know that I did not retire due to injuries. I just want to let you know that I failed you. <laughs> I was doing I was doing an Alfred. You were showing Michael Caine. You were doing Michael Caine. You can say it all you want, but you was doing Michael Nigel, Caine. Nigel, why do we pick ourselves up, Nigel? It's so we can do the Tower of London, Nigel. That's why we do it. <laughs> also, too, Nigel tried stand-up for a short period of time, yeah, too. Oh, stick to magic. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, just don't combine them. <laughs> oh, it's coming. He's going to find a way to put them together. He's going to realize, oh, I don't have to be as funny or as good at magic. What? I'm a headliner. <laughs> Everybody hide the amazing Jonathan tapes. So this feud with Nigel would lead to a series of unfortunate events for Jimmy. It's, it's not Nigel's fault in any way, but on uh, March 4th, 2007 in Liverpool, England, Jimmy faced Nigel and in kayfabe, Nigel broke Jimmy's jaw. In reality, Jimmy's jaw was broken by Samoa Joe way back on February 17th at Fifth Year Festival. 
This would be a pivotal moment in Jimmy's life because he would get prescribed and then addicted to painkillers. And I think it's easy for people, especially when we're talking about pro wrestlers, to say, you know, so-and-so threw their life or career away because of pills or, or addiction or whatever. But this happens all the time to all sorts of people. They get their wisdom teeth out. They they break their arm. They, they get a surgery. And fast forward a year, their life is in shambles because they can't beat the addiction from Vicodin or Percocet or whatever it is. And, you know, while there are people who just want to do some pills to get fucked up, bro, we should probably save a lot of our, you know, hatred and judgment for people like Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, Allergen, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, who profit off of all this misery, you know, as opposed to someone like a Trent Acid, a Test, a China, Mr. Perfect, who should still all be here today. I mean, Thank God he wasn't prescribed marijuana. This could have been even worse. <laughs> I mean, that was one of the fears I had about my father getting hip surgery. Like, I was legitimately concerned that, like, I knew that they would have to give him pain pills, and I was kind of concerned. I'm like, well, what if he takes a couple and he really likes it? And, like, here's this guy who's never really had any addiction issues. I mean, he has to have a beer every night. But, like, you know, does this lead to something more? But luckily my dad's a psychopath, and he's only had two uh, oxycodons since having hip surgery. The, the entire time, like only taking two pain pills out of the entire bottle that he gave him. So, I'm hearing the intense apple does not fall far from the tree. Yeah, I just I just love living in pain. Um, that's the key. Um, also, too, if you are Ryan Leaf, please do not break into my father's home and steal pain pills. Could could you not do that? I'd appreciate that. I know you. I know you've been cleaning sober for 11 years, but I'm just saying. If you feel like relapsing, don't break into Tommy Fearbox's house. They do not have pain. Also, my mom, she also has pain pills as well, too. She doesn't take very many either. Like, I think she's taken three after having open heart surgery <laughs> and cataract surgery within mere months of each other. She had only taken three pain pills. And, of course, my dad's like, pussy. <laughs> <laughs> so between the two of them, they've, they've taken five pain pills immense all of their massive ailments and surgeries and procedures but yeah it is a real thing and it really happens and unless you're apparently a psychopath like my parents God damn, you were built to be a professional wrestler jesus christ <laughs> ignore the pain keep moving ignore the pain keep moving don't sell that heart surgery don't do it <laughs> nope don't you dare you got to go to work tomorrow you got to go to work tomorrow I need you to work. That's what my dad said. He goes, I'm walking out of the hospital. I'm getting right in the tractor. I got to go to work when we're done with the surgery. <laughs> Till I die. Till I die. Are you looking to chat with sexy podcasters about wrestling? Duck one, duck two, tilt a world. Patreon.com slash Cody Rhodes. Indie guy. They're hot and ready to mark out. CM Punk, Cabana, Chris Hero, Chris Daniels, BJ Whitmer, AJ Styles, Super Dragon. Oh yeah. Patreon.com slash 10 Pod. Man, Chris Masters. Chris Masters. Chris Masters. Chris, 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 Chris Masters. Hot. They're ready to put you just push those traps together and just slide your penis in between like is that yeah that's the master lock patreon.com slash 10 bell pod
Jimmy took a little over a month off to get that jaw taken care of. He comes back to Ring of Honor, and now it's time to renegotiate his contract. So on May 22nd, 07, it was announced that Jimmy had re-signed with Ring of Honor. But he's only there a couple of months because ROH really kind of screwed him over on his contract. He got to talking with an unnamed friend who had also just got re-signed, but for more money and with health insurance. Cut to Vince McMahon going, what? So right before Jimmy broke his jaw, he had left his day job where he did have health insurance. So now he's missing a month of work, no health insurance. Ring of Honor just gave him like a laughable raise. So that's kind of a slap in the face. His addiction is ramping up. He's not in love with creative direction. So in summer of 07, he's like, I, I'm going to head out. So Jake, I have a question for you on this. Uh, because this is, for me at least, when it comes to comedy or like any form of entertainment, I'm super interested in the business aspect of it. And hearing about guys in 07 that had contracts from Ring of Honor, what would that even look like? Because they had no TV deals. I assume everybody was getting paid a flat rate per show. And I don't even think these contracts were exclusive to Ring of Honor because these guys were definitely taking indie bookings outside. What the, what's going on here from a business perspective? Nailed it. <laughs> you are a Ring of Honor wrestler. You will be paid $300 a show. Sometimes you will have travel expenses, depending upon what your deal is. Uh, most of the time we will pay for your travel expenses, yes. But we will cram four wrestlers into a room in the cheapest hotel room we can find. If we have a double shot, you have to figure out how you're going to get from show to show. We don't have any shuttles. You can gladly take bookings if you want, but if we decide we're doing a show on that day, we're your number one priority. We don't care that you wrestle anywhere else, just not on TNA and WWE. And that's basically what it is. That's I, I mean... Dragon Gate USA of all had those those contracts as well too. It was just uh, I think MLW has something similar. It's just like you're one of us and you're contracted. It, it means just as much as a social media post is what it means, and it means that we have the first rights to all of your bookings. But we're not going to tell you the schedule three months in advance so you can book your indie bookings. We just want you to always be available every single weekend when we call upon you, as opposed to letting you know in advance, or these are the dates we're running in June, these are the dates we're running in October, plan your, your schedule around accordingly. Did they have any type of agreement with talent to share royalties on DVD sales or merch that you knew of? Ugh, I don't know. I think the the situation is if you that three hundred, you should be grateful that you're getting three hundred because you're normally a one fifty guy. No, granted, in two thousand seven, that DVD nut has shrunk mm -hmm. tremendously. That from I'd probably say about two thousand five till about the time that streaming came a bit more prevalent in the twenty tens and twenty elevens, yep. maybe twenty twelves. The format was still very sketch and like streams are crashing yep. and i pay-per-views are very sketch oh that's a term i have uh, not heard in a minute an i pay-per-view i pay-per-view yeah the, that i pay-per-view range like there was a lot of issues if, if anything like people like panned it yeah like sinclair buying ring of honor and running actual pay-per-views was probably a, like kind of a saving grace because now there's a bit more of a budget there's a company and we're filming tv we can't just run one show a month and get enough matches out of it and content out of it to run uh, a television product. We have to run multiple shows. Also, too, with them being on pay-per-view, so there's a bit more of a royalties and everything of that sort. 
And I think they also might have got royalty cuts because they run like professional companies. So people panned the whole Sinclair thing, but it got it closer to a actual business form as opposed to you signed a contract with us, you're one of our wrestlers, mm. and that don't mean shit other than a social media post. And by the way, social media is not a big thing because it's 2006. Yeah. I love how me and Jake are like, we used to have to read a magazine or call Mean Gene on a dial-up phone. And Tyler's like, ah, oh, yes, the iPay-Per-View. That really brings me back. <laughs> Which is no different than like what it is now streaming. Like, it's what it is right now. It's just, they just changed the streaming. <laughs> like, oh, I remember iPay-Per-Views. Yeah, the same thing as Netflix. The same thing as everything else and whatever platform GCW is on. Oh, the olden days. You mean the same thing, but better quality. That's what you mean. I, it was specifically like the term iPay-Per-View. Like, you would be watching Ring of Honor or whatever and you'd be like oh don't miss our iPay-Per-View coming up September 14th and it's like oh that's there was no reason they could have they called it they should have called it an iPay-Per-View it's just it's the only way to explain it it's <laughs> I is in the internet and it's like a pay-per-view could have done like I uh with four P- letters we explained what we're doing well, I-P-L-E well, they're, they're, <laughs> then they're gonna like what the fuck at P-L-E <laughs> yeah premium live event ugh <laughs> <sighs> After leaving Ring of Honor, Jimmy was stopped by 07's Battle of Los Angeles, July 2nd, for a 12-man tag. And then it was off to TNA in August. And he's coming back to a much different TNA than the, you know, the old one-offs and small runs he used to do a couple of years ago. This TNA is, oh man, every Thursday, a young 8th grader named Tyler Wood, very heavy set. Uh, greasy hair, a lot of pimples, was watching uh, an impact every Thursday night or Monday when they switched over to that. And uh, I found a match from this time frame. So this was the beginning of the Rock and Rave Infection, which is just, oh man, there's a match I found. It is from February 7th of 2008. It is Curry Man and Shark Boy versus Lance Hoyt, current day Vance Archer, and Jimmy Rave. It's those two tag teams going against each other. Lance Hoyt and Jimmy Rave, known as the Rock and Rave Infection. Curry Man, for those of you that don't know, a very accomplished uh, Japanese wrestler uh, that wrestles with a small plate of curry on the top of his head. And uh, Shark Boy was a shark. And at this point, he had uh, begun to do a very convincing Stone Cold Steve Austin impression every week. So you have these two guys wrestling Lance Hoyt, who is doing a very admirable job of ripping off Slash and uh, Jimmy Rave, who is wearing uh, his favorite test shirt from the early 2000s, very <laughs> mesh looking. And uh, they are coming out with controllers from the Rock Band game, just having a great time. This match is on YouTube. If anybody wants to feel exactly what TNA Impact was like at this time, it could not encapsulate it any better. Listen, I gotta say... I went back to multiple pay-per-views that were panned by the critics that were done by TNA Impact Wrestling at this time period, and I watched them, and they're fucking great. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. <laughs> like, the wrestling in them is good. There are some great matches. There are some Kurt Angle pilled up out of his mind. <laughs> Mas- <Burke> Angle. Maestro. <laughs> masterful performances. I love me some Jeff Jarrett. I mean, even some Dudley Boy stuff that's pretty cool, LAX, and, and like Rock and Rave, and whatever AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels are doing what, no, this time period. No love period. for the Voodoo Samoa Kid Joe. Mafia? 
I, I got some love for him. I got some love for him for sure. I got some love for him. But matches are good. Those matches hold up more so than some of the ECW stuff. I'm going to go like, that's my hot take of this podcast. <laughs> that, that early TNA wrestling, mid 2000s, the wrestling holds up better than ECW wrestling. And I understand that that includes Guerrero and Malenko, but past that, there is not a whole lot worth watching wrestling wise in that ring. And I even know that encapsulate too cold Scorpio, but I'm telling you, the wrestling is far better in that mid mid 2000s TNA than in the entire run of ECW. Yes. I'll put that up against that. Yes, comma. Uh, Because (laughs) while I did see one of the best matches between Generation Me and the Motor City Machine Guns on an episode of Explosion, which doesn't even air in the U.S., they were putting that on Explosion to make time for the main event Mafia, Kurt Angle, Scott Steiner, Booker T, etc., to come out and have 20-minute-long segments. So, yes, the wrestling in that time at TNA, fantastic. The character work, courtesy of Dixie Carter, Vince Russo, whoever the fuck was booking at the time, very questionable. By the way, Nick, did you mean to uh, write Nancy Hoyt? Yeah, on the, on the outline it says Nancy it Hoyt. I'm like, what does Nick what does Nick have against Lance Hoyt? You what do you got against the murder hawk, son? I, I don't. I... You know enough bumps that I could book you in a dark match against him <laughs> that will have the same result against trained wrestlers. So, well, if you want to get the shit beat out of you by the murder hawk, I can make that happen. So, put a little respect on him in our outlines where it says TNA tagging with Nancy Hoyt. <laughs> Look, I worked like 12 straight hours on this episode. I don't know what I put in the goddamn outline. <laughs> well, no. I think I know what you're saying. You're calling him a Nancy boy because he's got a tramp stamp, and that's not, that's not cool, Nick. <laughs> Nancy boy murder hawk. <laughs> After his debut, Jimmy was often running, hitting impacts, house shows, pay-per-views, and doing a good bit of tagging with Nancy Hoyt. He'd also do some singles work, especially in the X Division. But he's working against all the TNA usual suspects from this time period. You got Motor City Machine Gun, Jay Lethal, and Eric Young, all the way into 2008. And of course, it was a good package with Chrissy Hemi. Like her coming out, and I just I can't get away the inflection that she decided to put on it. The Rock and Ring Infection. Like she always took it to this weird octave that I wouldn't have expected her to ever. Am I misremembering, or did she try to have like a singing career at one point? Anybody who was a WWE diva uh, during this time tried to have a singing career. So yes, that is your answer. Gotcha. gotcha. You should you should have heard Sonny's rap album. That was insane. Oh boy, that does not sound good at all. <laughs> Please tell me that's real. <laughs> no, but I want it to be really bad. <laughs> no, but Mickey James does have a country album. She does. She does. Mm-hmm. In May of 08, Jimmy got to go to New Japan, where he worked with Shinsuke Nakamura, Liger, and one of the newer versions of Tiger Mask. Back in TNA, it was more of the same until October, when Jimmy hurt his neck at Bound for Glory 4 in a still asylum match, causing him to miss uh, about a month. But, you know, this is just adding to the pain, adding to the pills. Uh, And in fact, by the time Jimmy went to rehab later in 2009, Jimmy was taking 70 Vicodin and 10 milligrams of Xanax a day. Jimmy would bounce back and hit some more dates, but by early 09, Jimmy and his addiction woes had overstayed their welcome, and he was released from his TNA contract. 
after about a month off, it was back to Ring of Honor when he surprise showed back up for the embassy to take on Colt Cabana and Brian Danielson at Ring of Honor's 7th anniversary show as a mystery partner for Bison Smith. I don't I think I saw this match. If not, I definitely saw the time that Bison Smith was in there with Jimmy Rave and Jesus Christ, that man is terrifying. Following 7th anniversary, Jimmy has some matches with your boy, Grizzly Redwood, before hopping into a feud with the Necro Butcher. Otherwise known now as the MAGA Butcher. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to like Necro, but man, like, when that's your identity, okay, whatever. Necro Butcher is a weird motherfucker. I met, oh, yeah. I met him uh, at a... Where did I meet him? I think it was that PWS show in Jacksonville, 2010. Where you, where you awkwardly got a picture with El Generico? Uh, yeah, the one where I awkwardly got a picture with El Generico three different times in one day? Yes, that's the very one. Yes. Uh, that's one. Necro Butcher was there, and if like he doesn't speak a lot, but when you talk to him, he sounds like one of the most well-read yeah <laughs> like very enunciating every word he's just he just sounds like a smart dude yeah and that's that's the frustrating part when you start talking like politics with him like he starts throwing out all these things and you're like okay well that was information not all of that is actually probably correct mm-hmm. that you delved into conspiracy theories and you believe them um i thought you were much more well-read than this and I agree. Maybe Bill Clinton was the wasn't the best president we ever had. I can agree with him that point. But then to all of a sudden go down this rabbit hole and you think America should be like this, I've got questions now. Um, that you're answering with conspiracy theories. And then you look down at his uh, feet and you go, "Oh, you do not wear shoes to the ring." Okay, all right. <laughs> okay, all right. This is this is where it is. Um, and this is where we'll leave it, my friend. On top of his Ring of Honor dates, Jimmy would also start working with great championship wrestling, not that other GCW, even coming full circle and working against his old trainer, Murder One, who you would think would be up to like Murder 7, Murder 8 by now. And Jimmy got some run with the GCW heavyweight title, trading it with Johnny Swinger. Jimmy's dates would come to a hard stop with Ring of Honor in September 09 after a dog collar match with Necro. So, 09 was a rough year for Jimmy performance-wise because of his drug addiction, and he'd end up going to rehab, as I mentioned before. I think he did have, like, one little relapse, but he did go back to rehab, and that time it would stick. Jimmy got clean. And, man, like, if you're going to be pilled up, a good time to do that would be when you're having a feud with Necrobutcher, because you wouldn't want to feel, you wouldn't want to feel any of that shit, like... That'd be, it'd be really fucked up. Like, I got sober, and now I'm getting into a feud with Necro Butcher. Like, that's... I think that would delay your, your recovery. I feel like that's that's how you would relapse, for sure. So, probably pick the time, like, all right, let me blow up this feud, and then I'm going to rehab, because I'm not doing this sober. Rolling into 2010, Jimmy did an NWA Charlotte date, January 23rd, losing to Sal Renaro, and I believe this is the match where Jimmy broke his nose and was put out for a while. I think it was between that and him taking over the booking for RPW, you know, just taking a more backstage role in general. It would keep him out until early July when Jimmy showed up to beat J-Rod, Jeremy Vane, and the Caleb Conley in a four-way for their TV title. And this is where I started to see Jimmy, like, a lot more. I saw him on a very regular basis. I think Caleb used to go down for this RPW. It was, like, in Warren, Warren Robins, Georgia. I think they even had TV. 
we used to put it on high spots TV, like, like our streaming platform. And it was kind of like a deal that Caleb worked out through Jimmy rave. And like, he's, Hey, we just want people to get eyes on what we got going on down here. And he had a whole faction. Like it was like rave approved and like all his guys were like, the best like indie wrestlers in Georgia and they were feuding a lot with Kyle Matthews. It was, Ooh, that's um, a name. That's a name. Yeah. Yeah. A, a very good wrestler. That was a, he, um, trained he was by, a real young kid, wasn't he? Yeah. He was trained by nightmare Ted Allen, same guy who trained Arn Anderson. And yeah, I think like Corey Hollis, Chip Day, Mike Posey, who is referee now with AEW, who I see every Wednesday. They were part of this faction called rave approved and, I think even I've seen Posey wear his rave approved shirt from time to time. His cutoff rave approved shirt. Every once in a while, I'll see see that. Or Chip Day will have a rave approved shirt pop up every once in a while, and it kind of makes you think about that time. Because I used to basically, it was much different how you had to upload that material. Like I had to like raw capture it, like have it play on a DVD player through a computer and capture it and then putting on the streaming platform. It was before like ripping softwares were accessible and that's how I used to rip those. So I used to see RPW stuff all the time when I put it on highspots.tv, which was a, a long lost streaming service before everybody else had streaming services in wrestling. That was kind of something that had been purchased through Michael Bacchicchio and his vision, which I apologize to anybody that had that because I did not understand interlacing and deinterlacing. So there's a lot of very liney video footage that was converted over the years, and kinds of like like a like a layering of ghosting happened a lot. But yeah, I, I remember seeing all all of those shows, and they're good shows. And and Jimmy put them together masterfully. It was just enough of a mix of the new stuff combined with like some old school like territorial like angles. And like I said, I think they had like. TV in the local area. They ran in the back of a uh, kind of like a Dave and Buster's type place. But, you know, you have those local like entertainment places that have like goat karting and miniature golf, like a Frankie's Fun Park or something like that. Like that's where this wrestling took place at its own little place. And it was a school during the week, but they had shows every Saturday and they would record for TV. And the guy that owned this kind of family entertainment center area like like wrestling and wanted wrestling to be a place so that way people could come in and watch the wrestling so it's kind of like an attraction like hey come play miniature golf and ride go-karts and then if you stick around at 7 p.m on saturday night we have wrestling and it was a great idea and you only could have done it with some guy who had money that owned a place like this that really liked wrestling and wanted it to exist and it ran for a very long period of time and it was very good. And I got to meet a lot of people out of there. Almost more, I think like even AR Fox like wrestled there from time to time. Like, like you look back at some of the, the, like the listings on probably like cage match, you'll see like, Oh wow, that guy wrestled there. And that guy, cause Jimmy was always very welcoming. If you were traveling up and down on the East coast and you saw this random show in Georgia and you were in Florida on Friday night and you were making your way up to Philly for a Sunday, and you contact Jimmy like, hey, I'm driving through. And Jimmy be like, yes, please. I, I want a different face because I have the same guys every week, a new face to come in and have a good match with one of our local guys. Please, by all means. He was very welcoming. He was very cool. Very generous to me uh, every time that he ever had me there. So I was very appreciative of him and what he did there. And you don't you don't see a lot of places like that anymore. It's like indie, like buzz and streaming or, you know, it's some wrestling schools promotion that they run once a month. Like you don't really see places where like a guy that's 
travel the roads and been everywhere indie wise putting something together and you can contact them like, hey can you put me on this show yeah sure no problem man you don't see a lot of that anymore unfortunately there were a lot of really good spots and a lot of really good wrestling happening and uh definitely what jimmy was doing there in warren warren robbins georgia uh was definitely that in 2010 it looks like jimmy only took a handful of dates but by 2011 things were picking back up for jimmy wrestling wise Looked like he mostly tried to hang out in the southeast towards home. He's working for RPW a lot. He's working in the variations of NWA popping up around. But it was also in 2011 that Jimmy decided to get into the mental health care field. You know, as someone who struggled with his own childhood trauma, his own addiction, his own mental health, you know, he wanted to reach out and help other people. And he specifically wanted to help professional wrestlers. In April of 2011, Jimmy was part of Dragon Gate USA during their shows in North Carolina and Georgia, and he even faced Johnny Gargano at one of them. And this is when like Jimmy was like in the mix a lot. Like he was, people always would book him, but they'd always try to get to like Chip Day, or they'd book him to make somebody else look good. And like I could tell he was a little bummed out by it, but he always had killer matches. And this is when he had like a lot of really positive influence on guys like Cedric Alexander. Jimmy was always very giving to Cedric and always wanted to try to book him as much as possible. And a lot of guys that were coming up like a Johnny Gargano. If you look at back at like early Jimmy Rave, he was trying to come up with some cool move in a match and he was always trying to be innovative. And now there's this new generation guys trying to do the same thing. And I've seen many a times, even with Cedric, where Jimmy's like, I saw you do this one thing, and that's really cool, but what if you did this and then this with it? And, you know, I think it might look a little bit cooler for you. Like, he was so instrumental to so many guys, and I don't think we really saw that until, like, he passed away. I mean, a lot of people spoke up and be like, hey, Jimmy was the guy who came up with this, or pushed me to do this, or got me to have this really great match that somebody saw, and then I got booked here. He was very influential and and really opened a lot of doors for a lot of people at this moment in time. Jimmy spent the majority of 2011 with RPW, but in July, he'd start being part of Raka King in India. Uh, He was training, he was wrestling, he was booking. This was a TNA collaboration or like subsect or something like that. In, in India, and uh, like I think I've overheard Sanjay and Jeff Jarrett talk about it fondly about some of the things they were doing there. And every once in a while, I'll see on Twitter somebody will post a, a clip of it. And it just, it's wild the, the amount of passion that the fans mm-hmm. had, and it was refreshing. And it felt like wrestling in the 80s when people were first discovering what wrestling was on a larger scale, and that was going on in India. And I'd I'd love to see more of that, like, for sure. Like, it was, like, the little clips that I've seen, it's like, oh, man, these people, like, this is the first time they're seeing wrestling. This is incredible. And anytime you have a market like that, I mean, as a wrestler, where you're in front of a crowd that's like, oh, this is probably the first time they've seen wrestling live. And it's the show I'm on right now. And, and they get it, and they want to have fun. And... Like they're just yelling and cheering and booing the bad guys. It's it's it makes you feel alive again. It it really does. And you don't you don't see it a whole lot, or else at least I don't, because I'm always at a TV taping and everybody's kind of aware of what we're doing and people are there because it's TV. I mean, we kind of saw it a little bit at the house show that AEW ran, and I haven't seen too many places 
like that because I haven't done too many. Nor- like Northeast Wrestling, it kind of felt like that a couple of times, but then they had their regular spots that they would always go to. So like it kind of was the same people every time and like their followers and in the Northeast. But that was one of the things I missed with like George South shows where we would do like a middle school because the middle school principal wanted to have a match in the main event and he would have all his students watch a show and it's like clearly you can tell within the first match like oh this is the first live wrestling that these kids have ever seen they don't drive to charlotte to go see wrestling at the spectrum center like no like these kids right here they're just they're here because the principal's on the show holy cow this is amazing and that's kind of what what that was Jimmy would pop back up in Ring of Honor for Final Battle 2011, facing the embassy's new crown jewel, Tommaso Ciampa, in a match that would end in DQ from some interference. In 2012, the year all the Mayans die, Jimmy's schedule starts getting a little fragmented, a little here and there. He's again, he's hanging out mostly in the Southeast Indies, random one-nighters in TNA, but you know, this is the part of a lot of guys' career where Unless you have the just the most random assortment of a ton of DVDs, it's it's real hard to just sit down and watch it, you know, with with any sort of through line. In 2019, Jimmy joined back up with CZW, where he'd have seemingly his last match ever at Cage of Death 21, teaming up with Monster Mac and Azriel to lose to Young, Dumb, and Broke. Not that long before the world shut down due to the pandemic. And then, sadly, we get to just one of the most bizarre, brutal, unfair passings I think we've ever had to talk about on this show. At some point in 2020, Jimmy would contract MRSA, announcing his retirement for pro wrestling on Twitter November 28th, 2020, because they were going to have to amputate his arm. But uh, unfortunately, it got worse. On October 24th, 2021, he tweeted that he had recently had both of his legs amputated due to MRSA. And it wasn't too much longer after this that Jimmy would sadly pass from MRSA at the age of 39 on December 12th, 2021. And we can kind of tie final thoughts into this, but Jake, do you remember any of this while it was happening? Because this is all just unbelievable. That whole that whole time was so crazy, and I I hear so many like I I don't I know you were kind of looking for me to jump in in a moment of time, but I, I there's so many stories about that time that like I've heard from incredible sources, and like even like oh well he was scamming people out of money, or like oh it was far worse than it was, and then I there was relapsed again. Like there's so many like stories that really didn't make any sense to me that I never got proven or heard to be true like there was a lot of things going on but it, the evident thing was that he had MRSA and he was losing an arm and I felt bad for him but then there was a part of me that was like man if anybody can figure out how to wrestle with one arm it'd be Jimmy yeah. Rave <laughs> was, kind of, was kind of my thought process was like you know like I think Jimmy is creative enough to figure out how he can make this work and work in a positive like he just needs a little bit of time a little space and figure out and he'll kick out and then I found out he was getting his legs amputated, and I remember at this time, um, a GoFundMe started at this time for him, and it was about the same time that Danhausen had a GoFundMe started for him, because Danhausen broke his leg, and at that time he was a Canadian citizen, and he was across the border in America, and he had broken his leg, and obviously had American, like I don't know how insurance worked, but I'm sure he had a lengthy like doctor's bill, I mean a very big one. And I just remember like 
money just flowing into Danhausen's GoFundMe. And then at the same time, I looked over at Jimmy Raves, and Jimmy didn't even have like a fifth yeah, yeah, yeah. of what Danhausen had. And I was just like, you know, Danhausen's going to be fine. But Jimmy's life is changed forever. Yeah. And we're not pouring money to this guy. Now, now, thankfully, Mick Foley got involved and really put out there and let people know about the GoFundMe and let people know about what Jimmy Rave was going through. Like, I think Mick may have even like donated entire proceeds of a comedy show to Jimmy. He was very active about it. He was getting on podcasts, letting people know about, about Jimmy. Like, he really pushed it forward. I, I think eventually maybe even Jericho got in and, and, and chipped in a little bit. But it was still, like, even after all that, it was still less than Danhausen. Uh, who had an injury that with proper medicine would make a full recovery from. And I remember at that time, like I had just like gotten my first raise from high spots in 10 years and had, it wasn't spending money on anything at that time. Uh, so I had some extra money and I made a point. I, I gave a little bit to Dan Housen, but I made sure that I gave five times more to Jimmy Ray because I was like, man, every, every independent wrestler in the Southeast, they should be, chipping into this thing and giving something because Jimmy was, you know, going out of his way to really help people and people really need to do that for him. And, um, I was kind of, like I said, like I was in discussions with him about possibly doing one of my fireside chats with him. And I'm like, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's kind of figure out a way that I could put some money in his pocket, much in the same sense that we did with Tracy Smothers. Uh, that's kind of one of the things that I always saw with high spots is, is using it as an opportunity to like, okay, well, let's figure out a way to make some money for you. Let's, you know, sign a few autographs, do an interview. Let's, let's figure out how to put some money in your pocket. Let's overpay you for it. And like, here's something, hopefully it'll help, you know? And, and that's what I was trying to work towards with Jimmy. And then he passed. He's gone. And that was it. And it's sad very sad because it just as you said it's very hard to collect like his footage all into one resource and watch it so you see bits and pieces of it here and there you'll see a tweet about it every once in a while like oh the embassy's on tv remember jimmy rave like you know like there's just you know fragments and little pieces of them everywhere but you know not enough to like People realize, oh, Jimmy Rave, you know, and oh, he passed away, you know, like it's a shame because he he really contributed. As I said, there's little pieces of him everywhere in wrestling, and like you'll you can see it with Priscilla Kelly, you can see it, uh, or Gigi Dolan is as she's done right now. You can see it with Cedric Alexander, you can see it with you know Chip Day, you can you can see it with with a, a multitude of different guys that he just opened up the door for. You know, and like I said, he was he was very good to me. He was a great guy, and wrestling is worse without him and what he contributed to other people. He was a really cool dude, and of of all the wrestling deaths, uh, it this one will like kind of just really kind of hit me pretty hard. Like it, it definitely was one of those ones that's like man, this didn't need to happen. This didn't need to turn out this way. Like, this is just a, a bummer all around. And that's what I think about. So I, I'm, I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk about him today because I think more people need to know about him, and that's kind of the point of this show. So I'm hoping that somebody that's listening to this show who had heard the name before and hadn't watched a match or was unaware of his history and his lengthy career 
hopefully this is a thing that sparks you to go back and go hunt all those things down because they're there. Those pieces are scattered throughout wrestling and it won't take much digging and you'll, you'll find some pieces of Jimmy Rave in professional wrestling. Jimmy wasn't just a foundation of Ring of Honor. He was a pillar of this indie wrestling revival that we still see the effects of today. It obviously took a lot of people like a punk, hero, Styles, London, Joe, etc. But Jimmy was always in the mix. And you could argue that a lot of those guys don't get over as big as they do without that despicable, universally hated hill that was Jimmy Rafe. Like the domino effect of removing Jimmy from the story of pro wrestling is potentially massive. He was a big part of me loving indie wrestling, just me getting back into pro wrestling when I did. You know, Jimmy Rave was front and center. And like I said in a shoot, he comes off as this, you know, awesome, kind person. You know, Jake backs that up. He deserved better than the indie got, but man, go find a Jimmy match. Enjoy his work. Let's keep his name going. Yeah, he was a staple of those independent guys that came up. Uh, they kind of got started in that in-between time from uh, uh, when ECW left to uh, when Ring of Honor started. There's like that in-between time that gave us guys like CM Punk, Brian Danielson, Colt Cabana, just like the list, Jimmy Rave. The list goes on and on and on of guys that are now at the top of the wrestling business. And Jimmy was right there with all of them. He was at the Ted Petty Invitationals. He helped bring uh, Ring of Honor to such a wide swath of new people. He's wrestling guys like Samoa Joe, CM Punk. He goes over to TNA and is a solid part of their tag team division. He teams with Lance Hoyt, Vance Archer, who is now just beating ass on several continents uh, in any given week. And Jimmy was one of those guys that was... There for all of the great ups and downs of wrestling of the last two decades, but unlike the guys like CM Punk and Samoa Joe and et cetera, et cetera, wrestling didn't pan out for him, as sad as that is. But uh, it's been nice to look back on his career and, and think back on all those great memories he gave me, and happy I got to see him wrestle. All right, that is Jimmy Rave's 10 Bell Pod. Thank you guys for donating to the Patreon, reaching out on social media, listening to the show. Uh, Jake, Tyler, you got anything? Nick, you keep up the good work. Guys, thanks for contributing to the Patreon. And if you have any ideas for extra content, uh, drop them in there and let us know. Please leave a review. Please, those re reviews are very important on whatever platform you are listening on. They are much, much appreciated. I think every time, usually we take a screen cap of it. The weirder, the dumber uh, there is. If there's some line that you think is funny in the podcast, like you just put that in for a review and that'll be good enough. That helps the algorithm and pushes up the charts. So any review of any form will be much appreciated. So thank you for those who have and thank you for those who will. All right. If you see Jake at an AEW show, give him a pack of NFL contenders. Oh, no. Fuck, no. Don't give me that. That's fucking trash, man. <laughs> NFL selects come out soon, so give me some some selects. It's, I, I prefer select over prism. That's my other hot take of the episode, so select, uh, please. Agreed. All right. Going to hit stop now. CZW.